So I'd like to pick up where we left off. If you remember, two weeks ago, we just started into the discussion of the children of Abraham with the understanding that, you know, our, our common um, understanding or our common discussion or the most uh, often we, we think about is, uh, from our study of Scripture, is the line of Isaac and, and uh, uh, the Hebrew line, of course, out of, out of Abraham. Islam, of course, traces its heritage back to Abraham also. But that's a line that we don't often uh, really notice or, or talk about or, uh, you know, discuss. So... Uh, that's the purpose of this presentation. We'll try and finish this and move on to the handout that you have today, uh, which is a tall order. We, I, I'm guessing we won't get through it all, but uh, uh, perhaps at a later time we can pick up again and, uh, and uh, continue the discussion. So we looked at this one text in Isaiah, uh, chapter 60, verses 6 and 7, which says, Great caravans of camels will come from Midian and Ephah. They will come from Sheba, Midian and Ephah being sons of Abraham through Keturah. And they will come from Sheba, and then all the sheep of Kedar and Abiath, sons of Ismail. So here you have these other sons of Abraham being represented uh, uh, in this particular text, and basically the picture that I get from the from these two verses is that the praise to God around His throne uh, in the new earth will be incomplete without representatives from these other sons of Abraham. That particular line, which in Scripture have become uh, are referred to quite generally as the children of the East. Um, and we'll we'll note several of them in, in the next few slides. So it, it it doesn't say that they will bring similar praise as the Hebrew people bring. They will bring their own unique praise. That's what I read into these these verses, at least. Um, all the sheep of Kedar and Abiah. So the praise of God around the throne in heaven will be a mosaic from all peoples, including um, those other sons of Abraham and descendants thereof from them, which can very much specifically, I think, refer to the to the Muslim people. And so let's look at the uh, just a few examples of the uh, children of Abraham. Uh, the two lines. On the left, you have the the uh, children from Sarah. On the right, Hagar, and by implication, also the other sons from Keturah. Uh, because if you look in Genesis 25, um, the other sons have sort of kind of classified somewhat together. Uh, they are divided in, uh, in, in that uh, the sons of Keturah are given a certain section of uh, which really is the eastern country of uh, present-day Iraq, Iran, Syria. But uh, uh, the sons of Ismail are given the uh, northern Arabia and uh, the present-day Jordan area, and uh, Isaac is given the Palestine area. So 
all of these other children are, are, are sons of Abraham are, are sort of the children of the East, including Northern Arabia and Eastern countries. Isaac was born to Sarah, of course, when she was quite old. Uh, but Ismail was the firstborn of Abraham. Uh, and what we're looking at here is, is indications or hints of some cooperation. Remember, our premise was at the beginning of this this particular presentation was that God had a plan for these other children of Abraham as well, and this is really addressing the second and third questions of our five question series, which we're not going to get the question four and five until a later time. Uh, although those are some of the most interesting of the of the five. Uh, but who are they? And so this is this is background to to the rise of Islam and the Islamic world uh, as we know it today, because they claim their heritage back through to actually to uh, Nebaioth, one of the sons of Ismail. And 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 our our common reaction to to Ismail is well, I've even heard him referred to as the bastard son, you know, or the illegitimate son. Well, if he's an illegitimate son, and I've heard Adventists refer to him that way, uh, if he is, he was recognized by a visit from the angel of the Lord on two different occasions, or the mother of Hagar was, of course. So uh, you have to kind of wrestle with that, that, that particular issue. Uh, and, we, and we noted that story in our, a couple weeks ago uh, when we were beginning this particular presentation. At the death of Abraham, they come together, Ismail and Isaac, and at the burial of Abraham. Again, signs of cooperation, also of signs and hints of God's purpose for these other children of Abraham, um, uh, along with the, the Hebrew line. Come down to the time uh, of Joseph, son of Jacob, son of Isaac. Uh, We know the story. He went to visit his brothers, and they throw him in a pit uh, uh, because of their antagonism from his dreams and his sort of relating the dreams in a way that uh, rubbed them the wrong way, obviously. And uh, what to do with him. And so in Genesis 37, you have the story... Uh, there that uh, and, and verse 38 I believe it is it says in one sen- one phrase it says Ishmaelites and the next phrase it says Midianites um, Midianites being uh, Midian being a son of Ismail so you have Ishmaelites and Midianites working together descendants uh, of the uh, Sorry, Midianites being uh, from Keturah. I'm sorry, mistaken. But you have these other sons of Abraham working together as traders uh, and uh, carrying spices and so on from eastern countries. Um, so was it Ishmaelites? Was it Midianites? Well, they were working together uh, in, in this trading business. Notice in this slide, y'all. I won't. We won't have time to look at all the references, but you have Quran references as well, because 
most of these are also mentioned in the Quran. Maybe not quite in the same way as in the Bible, but they are at least referred to. So if you have a Quran, you can look those up uh, at your leisure. Um, so here again, we have this cooperation um, where, where these other sons of Abraham actually rescue a son of Isaac. Uh, from his own brothers, carry him down to Egypt. And uh, we were reading actually in the Acts of the Apostles this morning, and uh, a reference is made, was made that uh, that took me back to this story actually. That, you know, Joseph's, the plan of God for Joseph. Uh, was not just to send him to Egypt so that he could later rescue his own family. But the purpose of God was also also to save lives of Egyptians, which uh, is a rather uh, expands our, our, our thought. In other words, it wasn't just for saving his own, uh, his own line. It was also to, to uh, be a blessing to the Egyptians and how many Egyptian lives were saved because of Joseph's... Uh, divine foresight uh, regarding the drought and famine and so forth. But the point here is, again, the cooperation or God's use of these these other sons of Abraham somehow uh, periodically in the scripture record. Going on down to Moses, um, uh, you have uh, Moses having to flee Egypt uh, because of his killing of the Egyptian and he's out in the desert and so here's a man who has been schooled in the palaces, palace of Egypt in the ways of the, of the, the palace there and suddenly, suddenly he's thrown into the desert situation and uh, uh, you know, here he is in a totally different uh, setting, context. Uh, how would he survive there? He comes upon a well of water, and uh, he doesn't have any means of, of, of getting water, apparently. And so uh, these young ladies come, and uh, he uh, helps them uh, water their sheep. Now, the normal sequence is that they have to sit all uh, to the side and wait for the men to water all of their sheep first. And we've seen that actually happen. Uh, we were in Chad at one time and uh, we're driving out into a country uh, place and uh, came upon this well and went over and, and uh, you know, spent some time just watching. And sure enough, here were, here were the women who were there to get water, either for some of their sheep or goats or whatever or just for their household use sitting to the side while, while the men watered all of their animals and then finally when they were finished then the, so that was a situation uh, with Moses and uh, but uh, with the, the women then but he helped them and so they got home early and I can just imagine that this part of the story that dad said well you know why why, why are you home so early and they said, well, this good-looking Egyptian out there helped us. And, uh, you know, his first reaction is, as a, anyone in the desert is, 
well, why didn't you invite him home? You know, I mean, hospitality in the desert is, is that's the rule. You, you must. Uh, it's survival. And uh, my, my guess is that they were so flustered by this uh, good-looking young man that uh, they forgot all about inviting him home. Uh, so Jethro says, well, go get him, you know, and bring him home. So Moses is harbored and sheltered and for 40 years and marries one of the daughters uh, in the household of Jethro. So who is Jethro? Huh? Who is Jethro? He's a priest of the... A heathen priest, huh? No, he's a priest of the Most High God of Midian. And who are the Midianites? Sons of Abraham via Keturah. So one of these other sons, one of these children of the East. And so here's one of the maybe best examples we have in Scripture of this cooperation and God using uh, this other line of, out of Abraham. Uh, when the knowledge of God had basically been lost by the Isaac line. They were, they've been down in Egypt for 400 years. And the knowledge of God, and God had to search uh, quite diligently to find one family, uh, and Moses, uh, the baby, spare his life, and, uh, and then use him as uh, the leader of his people. But out here in the desert, Jethro is keeping alive the knowledge of the one true God. So here the children of the East were actually teaching a child of the Isaac line, again reminding him of everything that his mother had taught him, and and probably even adding to that. And uh, I, I can just imagine that uh, sitting around the you know the fire there in front of the tent in the desert at night, the uh, the stories that were told. And, and Moses then, wow, yeah, Mom told me that story, you know, and, and, and reminding him of that and probably adding to his understanding of the one true God from, a, from an Arab, if you please, from a child of the East. Uh, one of those stories, I surmise, and this is my speculation, one of, I speculate that one of those stories was a story of a man far in the East who was the richest man of the East, who was an upright man, who had some terrible tragedies occur to him by the name of Job. And uh, it's an Arab story. It's a Bedouin story. Ayub, uh, Job. And uh, the clearest, it's interesting to me that the clearest picture of the cosmic conflict, really, and the issues in the cosmic conflict comes from a Bedouin, we could say an Arab, one of these children of the East. Now, you don't pin me down too closely to, to actually list the heritage of Job, you know, did it actually go back to Abraham? We don't have that record, but it was one of these children of the East, one of these other peoples, not of the line of Isaac, that God uh, 
use to give us the picture of the cosmic conflict in the book of Job. A couple small examples. The Hebrew worship in the temple. Uh, when they built the uh, temple, or the, uh, the portable one, uh, in Exodus 30, they had to dedicate it with an anointing oil. Uh, now, this anointing oil is quite a specific formula listed there in Exodus 30. Uh, olive oil was one of the constituents. Now, olive oil is readily available in Palestine. But the spices that are listed are not available readily in, in Palestine. And so where did they get the spices from? Well, as we've said, the, the other sons of Abraham became traitors in spices and other things. Um, so it's apparent to me that they, they had to actually uh, have some relationships, even though a business or trading relationship with these other sons of Abraham, descendants of them, in order to even uh, create this anointing oil to dedicate the temple so that they could worship uh, as God had directed. Again, a small hint of, of uh, some cooperation and uh, God's purposes. And I, I really feel that you know God's per- ultimate purpose was that these traders could carry the knowledge of God to distant lands. You see. Uh, he had placed his he had he was intending that his people be in Palestine as a crossroads for the world. But also these traders could serve as, as uh, avenues of of the truth about God. Coming down to the time of, of Joshua, um, you remember Moses said uh, uh, commanded that they each tribe uh, choose someone so that there would be 12 men to go in and spy out the land. Uh, deceptive, clandestine activity, but uh, anyway, you I, I, that's a whole other story as to why I mentioned that, but because uh, I've gotten accused of, of doing miss, missions in a clandestine manner. And I, I go back to some of these kind of stories, and I say, "Well, wait, wait a minute." You know, that's a whole other topic. Well, that that deals with question number five, so we'll get there later sometimes. Um, all of the tribes were able to select someone from their tribe, except the tribe of Judah. Uh, they couldn't seem to find someone from their bloodline, and so they chose. A man with a, with a foreign name, uh, Caleb. Uh, now, the name Caleb is very close to a name that is not that complementary in Arabic. Uh, Nabil? Um, dog. dog. The word for dog, which is one of the uh, most insulting uh, names. But anyway, Caleb, it seems to be an Arabic name. Now, we don't, again, know all of his uh, ancestry, but he was not one of the Hebrews. He was one of these other groups of people. Whether it was specifically from, from, from Abraham or not, uh, we don't have all that information. 
His nephew, Othniel, became the first judge of Israel. So God was including some of these other peoples, you see, and using them also. So we have a son of Isaac, and we have a son of the east, being the two who stood up and said, no, we can take them. And I was double-checking this morning, because I, I, we've had, I've had this presentation for a number of years, and I was just rechecking again the Quran reference here. And it's interesting, the Quran reference doesn't mention uh, Caleb by name, uh, but, uh, but it does, if you look in the commentary on some translations, it actually mentions uh, Joshua and Caleb uh, and, as being referred to in this, this particular reference that you have there. Again, just hints of the cooperation. Balaam, I toyed whether to include Balaam or not. He's kind of a rascal. But, uh, but at least he did prophesy of, of the coming Messiah. And he did say what God said, but not a Hebrew, a son of the Eastern children. Suleiman, Solomon, uh, son of Isaac, queen of Sheba, daughter of the east. A queen of the east brings gifts to Solomon. And there's, this is also mentioned in the Quran. Uh, in fact, there's quite a lengthy little story about it in the Quran. We come down to the time of Jesus. And we have, again, two groups of people that visit the infant Jesus. We have shepherds from the line of Isaac, and we have wise men or magi from the east. Now the shepherds bring what a shepherd would bring. A sheep, a lamb, a symbol of the sacrifice. And what do the children of the east bring? Spices, gold, incense to anoint the sacrifice. And you can immediately think back to the combination in the anointing oil for the dedication of the temple uh, for worship. So here again, we have God apparently giving us a hint that these other peoples also, and, and the story is very clear that they knew more about the coming of Jesus than the Jewish leaders. And our mind goes back to the quotations we've read in, from Desire of Ages that, uh, that, that says uh, that outside the Jewish nation, there were those who were looking for a divine instructor. And uh, the spirit of inspiration was imparted to them. And she says, like one after another, like stars from the heavens, they arose. Uh, so, so God's spirit was working through these other peoples. Uh, this forms a background then to, because Islam traces its heritage back through those eastern people. This is the background. You see. This is the biblical background. And I've presented this in to Muslims directly in, in a mosque at one point. And the Muslims are amazed at this because they've never heard someone, a biblical person, uh, talk this way. Uh, Usually when a Christian uh, interacts with a Muslim, it's more in a debate or 
proving I'm right, that the Bible's right and the Quran's wrong, or, or Jesus is better than Muhammad, or, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that more later. But we, get, we, get, we, we chase these rabbits, you know, of, uh, which aren't centrally important. And when they hear this kind of a presentation that, wow, they say, this, this is amazing. And, and, and they really appreciate it. What about after the time of Jesus? And here we go back, we come into what we covered, uh, what, a couple weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago, on that, you know, the, the historical line that we drew here on the board of, of the Christian history. And we were looking at the question of who are we as Seventh-day Adventists? Uh, where, do, where do we place our heritage and, and, and so forth? Well, that's where we get into in looking at these two lines and what happens after the time of Jesus. You have Jewish and Gentile followers of, of Aisa, and um, you'll notice I'm using the Muslim uh, terminology here, uh, Aisa being Jesus. Uh, I chose to to give you the the Muslim version of this presentation. I have two pre, two versions. I thought, well, let me use the Muslim version. So this is one that you could use in a Muslim setting. Um, so these Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus, uh, you trace that line, and we did so on the, on the board. The genuine followers of, of biblical faith, uh, you re, uh, we remind ourselves, were persecuted by the Roman and the Byzantine church all the way down through to the Crusades and, and so forth. They're referred to in Revelation 12 as the church in the wilderness. Over on the right-hand side, do we have any evidence of a, that line continuing among the Eastern peoples? Well, there were Arab followers of the way of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 2, there are about 15 different uh, regions listed that were there at Pentecost. Huh? And that the disciples spoken or heard or spoke in, in these different languages. One of them is Arabia. So there, there were apparently followers of Jesus, even in Arabia. The other evidence would be that where did Paul go after his conversion? He went to Arabia. Now, my understanding of Paul and his character is that he would not be sitting in a cave somewhere meditating. He would be preaching. And I'm sure he shared uh, his, his newfound understanding of the Savior in Arabia. Um, you could probably list other evidences as well. But in northern Arabia, faithful believers on the right-hand bottom box there stood against the polytheism of surrounding religions such as the multiple gods of the Nabataeans. Now looking at the central boxes there, uh, I've already mentioned the interaction with Arabs in Acts 2 and Paul going to Arabia. Then we have in the European side, or the, the, the Western Church, we have the Waldenses, we've already referred to them. Um, but we also have Arab followers of the way and other excommunicated Christians. Remember we said that the in, in, in 450 or 431 
at the Council of Ephesus, the whole Eastern Church was excommunicated by the Byzantine and Latin Church. Uh, and many of those people sought refuge and fellowship with Arabs in the desert of Arabia. They were known as Hanif. And that's a word that simply was referred, apparently coined about them. Um, there's various theories of, of the origin of the word, but they were called Hanif. And uh, how do we know about that? Um, well, let me just skip for sake of time. Um, so God was keeping, let me just summarize, God was keeping the uh, truth alive both in the Western world through the church in the wilderness, but also in the East with the Hunifat or the plural of Hanifs. Um, Muhammad actually came on the scene in six with his initial revelations in 610. Uh, and uh, his two primary truths were there is, a, there is only one God. Remember he's speaking this in the context excuse <coughs> me He's, speak, he's speaking this in the context of very polytheistic surroundings. Arabia itself was, was polytheistic at that time. When he eventually uh, came back to Mecca and uh, regained control in Mecca, he actually cleansed the Kaaba, which is the large black uh, shrouded structure that is the center of uh, direction of worship. Uh, he cleansed it of all the idols that were inside. Many of those idols he had purchased from Christian traders, interestingly. Uh, so it was a, it was a pagan uh, pilgrimage site, actually, prior to Islam. So his message was, there is only one God. Now, various people raise arguments that, well, is Allah uh, the moon god or, or whatever, that it was referred to the moon god previously. Well, there's little evidence archaeologically for that actually uh, very little evidence and uh, even if he did he took the understanding at that time which was to say God Allah is not just the greatest of all these gods that you have he is the only God and there is no other see? so he, he that that's the direction of Muhammad's message the other primary message of Muhammad was that there's a day of accountability, that there's a day of judgment to come, and you better live your lives, straighten up, and, and, and live right, because you're going to have to give uh, account for, for your actions at some point. Um, but here's a couple quotations uh, which, which back uh, my assertion that there were followers of true faith, even out in the eastern lands. We've concentrated in our understanding mostly on the, the Western uh, area of the church in Europe, uh, the, uh, you know, the mountains of northern Italy and so forth. That's, that's where the truth was being kept alive. But it was also being kept alive out in the Eastern church. And I have two sources here. The one on the left is from Samuel Moffat, who has written a two-volume series of the history of the church in Asia. The Nestorian Christians of Herta. Now, Herta, if you look on some older maps, is is on the Euphrates River uh, in southern Iraq, kind of 
partway between uh, present-day Baghdad and Basra. So the Nestorian Christians, this was the Eastern Church that were excommunicated, uh, formed a close community calling themselves servants of God whose inner unity transcended traditional tribal differences. Uh, the story in this part of the world at that time was a lot of tribal uh, rivalry and, and fighting and so forth. These people were above those tribal differences. The Islamic historian, Ismail Faruqi, uh, in his, his book, uh, Cultural Atlas of Islam, says both Jews and Christian immigrants to the desert found a ready welcome among those Arabs who upheld the Mesopotamian Abrahamic tradition. And I think in the previous few sentences he refers to these Jews and Christians as those who had been excommunicated by the mainline, particularly the Byzantine church. Together they consolidated that tradition in peninsular Arabia, which came to be known as Hanafiya. Its adherents, the Hanifs, resisted every association of other gods with God, refused to participate in pagan rituals, and maintained a life of ethical purity above reproach. The Hanifs always stood above tribal disputes and hostilities. So again, from a, an Islamic historian, this is prior to Islam. There were these people in the eastern countries, again, uh, that line of these eastern people keeping the truth of alive out in the deserts of northern Arabia, southern Jordan, Iraq, and then that part of the world. So we're left with the question. So we, we, we've traced these lines and said God had some purpose for these eastern children as well. And out of that eastern line, or the con that's the context also for the rise of Islam, and, and please don't uh, take it too far and say, well, and, and you know, around the dinner, uh, lunch table today, say, yeah, yeah, White House is saying that Islam is equally inspired and Muhammad must be an equally inspired prophet. And I've been accused of that, so I just want to uh, suggest that that's not exactly what I'm saying. But I am suggesting that, you know, we, we admit that God has used certain people down through history who may not be perfect examples of uprightness and of character and so forth, or have all the truth. Um, you can cite even in, in more recent history are the reformers who, who we, we base a lot of our current uh, understanding upon. Uh, but they may not have had a complete understanding of, of truth as we uh, seem to, as we feel that we do today. Yet we say God used them. God worked through them. And, 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 and we, we use their writings and so forth. And I'm always suggesting that perhaps it would be helpful to us to, to look at Islam and Muhammad in that same light. Is it possible that God used Muhammad in a context which was very polytheistic, in a context in which Christianity itself was not giving a clear message? Because you had even certain Christian groups in, in southern Egypt particularly who were asserting that the Trinity, for example, 
was God the Father, Mary the Mother, and Jesus the Son. Uh, and most of the, 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 the verses in the Quran which say are against the Trinity, or against three, saying God is three, Trinity isn't a word that appears either in Scripture or in the, in the Quran. It says, don't say three. Most of those are referring to that aberration of understanding about the Trinity. So Christianity itself was not giving a, a, a clear message. Um, and, and we've already talked about the, the uh, church councils raising, uh, taking the, the whole theology of the nature of, of God and the nature of Christ to a level that had no impact on the common person. So Islam comes in with this very simple message saying, God is one, there's a day of accountability. You see. So is it possible that in that the context of the day, God actually used Muhammad and Islam to restore a certain understanding of monotheism that was being threatened at that time? But we're left with the question, what about today? We have people of the book. That's a Quranic phrase. People of the book refers to those people who are following the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. So it would be Christians and Jews, at least following the Old Testament. Looking for the coming of Jesus. Proclaiming the judgment hour message. Calling for people to honor the Creator God. Focusing on preparing a people for the end of time. I hope that's our focus. That's my understanding of what it means to be an Adventist. Avoid what God has forbidden, and specifically alcohol, pork, tobacco, gambling. What about these children of the East, who pre-Islamic were called Hanif? That feeds into Islam. If you would have asked Muhammad what, uh, what uh, his religion was, he probably would have said, I'm a Hanif. And that's on the basis of certain texts in the Quran which command him to say, I am neither Jew nor Christian. I am of the religion of Abraham, the Hanif. That's direct quotes, and that appears in several places in the Quran. God's last day people, perhaps, proclaiming the nearness of the end of time. That is an issue in Islam. The one creator God, the day of judgment, prepare people for the end of time. Now, that may not be exactly the wording that a Muslim would use describing their their mission, but it is there. One can find it there. What's the relationship today? Is it possible that there could be some interaction in which we encourage each other in our journey towards the kingdom and the preparation of the coming of Jesus. God is looking for a quality of faith among his end time people. This verse from the Quran, Allah is our Lord and your Lord. For us is the responsibility for our deeds and for you for your deeds. There is no contention between us and you. Allah will bring us together and to him is our final goal. familiar with Revelation 14, 6, and 7. We 
had two years of discussion of the book of Revelation. But it's interesting to me that the two primary messages in the first angel worship God alone, the Creator God. The day of judgment is come. Okay. And what were the two primary messages of Muhammad? One God, day of accountability. Now, I'm not a sir. I'm not uh, trying to say that uh, Muhammad was a student of Revelation 14, but uh, it's interesting to notice that comparison. A prayer in the Quran, as for me, and Muhammad is commanded to pray this actually. My Lord hath guided me into a straight path, a right religion, the community of Abraham, the Hanif, who is no idolater. My worship and my sacrifice, my living and my dying, are for Allah, Lord of the worlds. Comments? Questions? The, uh, the question in regards to can God speak to other groups, I think, I don't know what other people think, but I think that's certainly something that we can see through the Bible. The question that I have is we would want to have, I presume, Muslims to read the Bible, to read things that we think are important. Does the same principle hold true for us? In other words, are we to read the Quran to find practical advice to live today? Um, I don't know the answer to something I'm thinking. We can leave the question there, or you want my response? <laughs> I can give my response on that, sure. No problem. Um, obviously, my conviction is that the, the Bible is the primary source of authority. And uh, I will always uphold the primacy of Scripture. But that does not exclude me from looking at other writings including the Quran. And I would say this, that I, I, I know many, I have heard a number of Muslims say to me, when they became a full, should I say a full, came to a, a more complete understanding of Jesus, his death on the cross, Savior, so forth. When they came to, to grasp that, they would say, my journey in my understanding of Jesus began in the Quran. And many Muslims now are saying, you see, the old, the old method was, well, you've got to turn your back on Islam, and, and, and it was an extraction methodology uh, of mission. And uh, I just don't find a basis for that in Scripture. Um, in Scripture, I find considerable support for people remaining in the cultural and social context in which they come to an understanding of, of God. Um, we have had Muslim, Muslims in this class in recent weeks, and um, she came up and talked with me after the class, and uh, she said, she made the comment, we're believers in Jesus. And, and I assured her, I said, I will never say to a Muslim that they are not, that they, they are not believers in Jesus. So they get very offended when you accuse them of not believing in Jesus. 
they do believe in Jesus, very, very much so, simply not in the full biblical understanding of his death on the cross. And there are many reasons for that, and some legitimate reasons. And part of the reasons are the, the inappropriate way Christianity has presented the whole question of his divinity and uh, his death on the cross and the purpose of his death on the cross. I'm kind of wandering around your question, but uh, the the uh, you know referencing it to to the main thing we have dealt with in this class to the cosmic conflict. Uh, my feeling is that the only way to really explain the death of Jesus and the and the. Uh, the purpose for his death and so forth is a cosmic conflict understanding. Uh, Muslims simply cannot understand some of the traditional Christian explanations for that. So I'm wandering away from your question to realize that the bottom line is by using the Quran, I am certainly, I feel enriched personally, but also that's an avenue of me relating more effectively with the Muslim. But the primacy of Scripture is there. Any other questions, comments? Yes, we have a Czech uh, with us this morning. Yeah. I've done a number of uh, evangelistic series in the UK, and on each occasion I've had Muslim young men come to me, and they seem to have very good knowledge of scripture. Now, what they've done is they've gone looking for the errors that they perceive to be in scripture. But they, they seem to know the scriptures. Is this general practice for Muslims to uh, examine the Bible? And why do we have such a concern, if not a fear, of studying the Quran to get a better understanding of, of who these Muslims are. Sorry, my reference to a check. I, my wife, uh, or he phoned our house this morning and uh, Judy didn't recognize his voice. So she asked, who in the world are you? And he said, well, I'm from Czechoslovakia. So. We're my, the Czech Republic now. Czech Republic now. <laughs> and I, I wanted to say to you, Man, I thought blacks were from Africa. I, I didn't know they were from Czechoslovakia. No, no, black people started in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> they migrated to, to Africa. <laughs> I think we have a Sabbath school class, actually. <laughs> we're good friends, obviously. Um, do Muslims in general study the Bible and know the Bible? Only, only those who are trained in da'wah, basically. Those who are trained in, in, in mission, in, in interaction with, with Christians. And you have, you have a, a man by the name of Ahmad Didat, uh, who lived in South Africa, who was a South African. I have, spoke, I have spoken in his mosque, actually, after he died. <laughs> but he was a great debater. And uh, he wrote a number of books in which he would use scripture and, and twist scripture to confuse and embarrass uh, Christians in debate. 
And so many Muslims uh, used his material to uh, debate Christians. And uh, as you know, debate isn't concerned about truth. It's simply concerned about humiliating the other opponent. So you don't arrive at truth through debate. Um, you find out who has the sharpest wit and can humiliate the other person. Yes. Um, oh, I was just curious. You mentioned the cosmic conflict. Is there uh, is there anything that overlaps there between Islam and, and Christianity? Well, that's the handout you have for today. <laughs> that we're five minutes from uh, closing time, and so I'm not going to. I have a story in mind I'd like to tell you, kind of in closing, that's going to take up a couple minutes. So. Uh, I think we'll just have to reserve. If you can hang, hang on to this handout, I don't know when we'll meet again. We're, we'll be gone for a couple of Sabbaths. But at some point in the future, we'll, uh, we'll address that. And this, this handout, by the way, is, is totally from the Quran. It is saying, is there evidence of the cosmic conflict in the Quran? And it's looking at that. We're calling it the cosmic jihad. Okay. Uh, there was another. Okay. Any other comments, and then I'll I'll close with a story. Acts seventeen speaks about Paul in Athens, and he says, "As your own poets have spoken," and he is speaking truth from the from the Athenian poets. Could that lead us anything on to our exposure of other people's truth and other cultural? I have two, two translations of the Quran with me. I have a number of other in my others in my office. So I was, I was giving a presentation one time, actually at an Institute of World Mission at Andrews, and I had this particular Quran with me, and I, I referred to it because I was talking to them about Islam, some of them going to Muslim countries. And a question afterwards was, aren't you afraid to handle the Quran? Uh, it wasn't appropriate to laugh. Uh, that was my inner reaction. The questioner was serious. Uh, those are some of the fears that we have. And uh, it comes back to who are they? If we approach Islam with the assumption that they're satanic, that it's a satanic entity, uh, that it's an evil empire, and so forth, uh, then yes, we will have some fears. But I've tried. That's why I've gone. I take the time to go through these two lines out of the child of Abraham, the children of Abraham. God definitely worked through these other peoples, and we have glimpses of it down through history. And from all we've talked about, that that you know, the third question: any evidence of God's activity in them? The handout that you have that we haven't gotten to. Uh, is also addressing that question. Because I find stuff in the Quran that you have to say, well, how did it get there? What's the source for it? Um, you know, I grew up with the attitude, with the understanding that, that uh, well, the devil is always going to, uh, you know, mix a, a little error with truth, and so you've got to be very careful. Well, that's one approach. But another approach would be to say, well, is there something in the Quran which I can use? 
that is consistent with biblical understanding that I can use in interacting with a Muslim to build faith. If I'm going to get this little story in, we better go ahead with that. Um, Judy and I were privileged to visit an island off of the east coast of Africa a number of years ago. It's a Muslim island, and we're replacing a worker on that island. Now, this worker was not the traditional Adventist pastor. He wasn't dressed like I am, didn't have a coat and tie. He had a galabia, and he was baptized on Saturday night, and Sunday we were going to take him, and he was already living on the island, but we wanted to just reinforce his presence on the island as a Hanif, actually. We're using what we've talked about in the presentation this morning. And uh, so Sunday morning we met him and his group at the dock, uh, it's just a 10-minute little boat ride out to the island. And um, um, he was, uh, somebody had stayed in the same hotel room with him who was accompanying him. And they, he said to us, he said, we didn't get any sleep last night because uh, Osman was jumping up and down and praising God for his baptism the whole night. <laughs> um, and uh, so we, we get in the little boat, we go out to the island. Now, the background to this story is that about six months prior to our visit, a Pentecostal pastor wanted to evangelize the island. It's a totally Muslim island and uh, quite a strict Muslim island. He had taken his projector and his Jesus film. He never got off the island, uh, as far as I know, uh, unless somebody got the ashes. They burned him to death, they trashed his equipment and so forth because he was desecrating their island, their faith. And uh, so we're the next, I'm the next Christian pastor to visit the island. Okay. And uh, we go to a little madrasa. And uh, this is, if you can imagine, some of you are old enough to remember your little church school that was about ten kids in the room or something, you know, and a local church struggling to, to keep this little church school going. Well, that's what we were sitting in, in an Islamic community, struggling to keep their little, not church school, but mosque school, Mandrasa, going. No, no windows in the openings. They did have block walls and a metal roof, dirt floor, simple little wooden desks. And we're, we're sitting there, and I, as they're doing introductions and so on, and there's the imam from the mosque, there's the head of the school, and about 10 other, 10, 12 other locals sitting there, Judy and I and my host and his wife. And uh, I look under this little desk and I pull out a book. And I, I look at it. It's in Arabic. No, no, no translation either to any other language, just Arabic. No covers on this book. But I immediately recognize it as a Quran. Now... I was amazed because Muslims are very careful with the Quran. And, and, and you never see a Quran in this condition. It's the only one I've ever seen so beaten and worn. I mean, I have traveled extensively with this little Quran, and I, I, I treat it very carefully. Because in a Muslim setting, if, if, if it's seen that you are not treating it, you know, we wave the Bible around and, 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 and so forth. No, no, no. That's that's disrespectful um, for a Muslim. So, 
and it's still in good condition. So I was surprised. Well, uh, first half of the book was missing, last half of the book was missing, or not half, but portions. So I, I put some scraps of paper in a couple verses that I would refer to because I knew I was going to be asked to speak and put it back under the desk. And uh, they finished the introductions. My host turned to me and he said, they want to hear from you. What he did not say to me, he could not translate because some of them understood English. He could not say what they had said. They had said, who's he? Now, I was dressed in Muslim dress, but, you know, even with a Muslim cap and a, a long shirt, um, who is this guy? You know. So it was a valid question, and he said to them, he said, he's a, he's a religious teacher. Uh, and they said, oh, really? We'd like to hear from him. We want to see if he can teach us from the Quran. If he cannot, we know what to do. He didn't tell me that. <laughs> but I knew the story that the previous Pentecostal pastor had met his end there. So I, I said to them, I said, thank you for welcoming us onto the island. I understand that you don't welcome everyone on the island. And uh, then I said, I want to commend you on this madrasa, this little school also, because... Uh, I understand that you must instill principles of faith in your children, right? Now, I could sit there and scold them about all the terrorism they might teach in the madrasa, you know. I wouldn't have been too smart to do that. So I said, you need to instill principles of faith in your children because when they go off the island, I said, you can guard them and you can shelter them on the island. There's no television, no electricity on the island, so... Uh, very little exposure to the outside world. I said, but they're going to go to the mainland. It's only a 10-minute little boat ride. I said, they're going to be exposed to all kinds of things, so you need to instill strength of faith in your children in this school. I said, but I see you have a problem. And I pulled out this beat-up Quran, and you should have seen the reaction. They were embarrassed. And I said to them, is this the only Quran you have? Is this the best Quran you can have for your children? I said, I've never seen a Quran in this condition. And you should have seen the heads drop. I said, maybe we'll have to help you with that and get you some new Qurans so you can teach your children. I said, but let me show you a couple things from the book. And I opened and I... I um, it was in Arabic, so I, I opened to Surah 30, and uh, I repeated it, or read it in Arabic. فَأَكِيمْ وَشَكَ لِلْدِينِ حَنِيفًا فِتْرَةَ اللَّهِ أَلَّذِي فَتْرَ الْنَاسَ عَلَيْهَا لَا تَبْدِيلَ لِخَلْقَ اللَّهِ Now, many of them didn't understand Arabic, so I had the opportunity, obviously, I could explain. So I said, this is... Set your face to the religion of the Hanif. So set your face, you know, resolutely. I mean, it's Akim Washika. With intention, with, with, with determination, set your face 
to the to the to the religion of the Hanif, the Deen Hanif, and we've already talked about the Hanif. It is the nature that Allah created you in. It is the way He shapes you. So I said, do you know what it means to be Hanif? Their immediate response was, what well, means to be Muslim? Now what am I supposed to say? <laughs> yes, you're right, but let me tell you what that really means. Okay? I talked about submission. Islam means submission. But then I, I, I even told them the story of these Hanif pre-Islamic that I've shared with you this morning. I said there were, there were people even prior to Islam. I said they didn't engage in tribal disputes. Uh, they didn't burn people. Uh, I didn't say that, but they got the message. They, they were of upright character. They worshipped the one true God. I said, that's what it means to be Hanif. And I expanded on that with a real challenge. And then I closed with the verse, and the reason I got my mind on this, this story is that last verse that I showed you, which is the prayer, uh, that my life, my sacrifice, everything is for Allah, the Lord of the universe. I said, that's the level of commitment God wants from each one of us. The life of faith that He desires from each one. As we walked off the island, the older imam, the elderly imam, said to our host, uh, he said, we were embarrassed that we didn't have a complete Quran for him to use. You're welcome back on the island at any time. Now today on that island, there are a there is a group of believers in Jesus as their Savior. As a result. Not as a result of my one visit. No. The worker there. But my visit was to establish him there. And to raise the understanding of the group as to a higher calling. And that, that this person that we were placing there would be the one to teach them and lead them to that. Now, I had my Bible in my bag, and I had this Quran in the bag, but I'm very happy that I was able to find their Quran, only in Arabic. This wasn't a fake. You know, this wasn't some, some trickery, you see. It was genuine, and they, they got the message. I use that as an illustration of several things. One, of the volatility of some of these situations you're in but also how God's Spirit can be present as well. You see. Now, if I'd have taken my Bible out and said, now, you know, you really need to understand John 3.16, I wouldn't be here teaching today. Okay. But by using what is available in the Quran to lead them to a deeper spirituality, we could begin a process of spiritual growth. Well, I hope we have a chance again uh, sometime in the future to proceed. You have that copy of the Cosmic Jihad in the Quran, and uh, if we have time to look at that at sometime in the future, we'll be happy to do so. Father, go with us now. May, be op- may we be open to your Spirit's leading 
in our own lives, but in the lives of others of different faith traditions also. We pray in your name.